The business of culture, the culture of business, media and technology, markets and politics, startups, authors, creatives, much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. That is how we keep our democracy, is by being very vigilant. And so when we see something that is an attack on one of our basic and fundamental rights, we need to make sure we fight it. That's what I'm discovering. Even being the old guy that I am, I'm learning new tricks and learning new things. And one of the things I'm learning is the fight for our basic civil liberties never really ends. It never really does. In case you missed it, from CBS's Face the Nation rapper Rick Ross's personal chef to an indie bookseller striking back in the culture wars, we are back with highlights from recent broadcasts. Do you stay with us? This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. Follow, subscribe, and rate us at linkfulldradio.com. We are on all the social media channels at handle Full D Radio. We start with a rewind to my recent live show with Face the Nation host Margaret Brennan, which we recorded before an audience at Charlottesville's historic Paramount Theater. Margaret delved into her first years in professional journalism. I could keep going around the world with you. We could concentrate on markets, politics, foreign affairs, diplomacy, realpolitik, but I want to focus on you, Margaret. Uh-oh. This, we're back to your, we're back to your UVA stomping grounds, and I want you to take me back to 2002. Your journey in those 21 years, uh, you went immediately after UVA. What, you took a Fulbright and you took this job with Louis Rukeyser? Well, I had, when I was an undergrad here, I studied foreign affairs and Middle East studies, and I minored in Arabic. So I had the, the Fulbright-Hayes grant, which is language-based, in that summer, uh, I guess this was all pre-9-11. It's a very different Middle East. But I had it in the summer, in a summer semester. Um, and then I came back, and it was, I have full-throated endorsement of study abroad experiences. I think they're very, very useful. And I think it took some of the things I studied in the classroom and just changed how I thought of them in a very real sense. I mean, first of all, I think anyone who studies a language when you're just thrown on the street and you have to get around, it is the most humbling experience and you will never come back and deal with someone who speaks, who's trying to speak English in the same way because you're like, oh my God, it is humbling to just be struggling and saying, I sound like a five-year-old and I'm just trying to get in the taxi and tell them where to go and why won't it come out right? And it that's huge. But also on um, in terms of having a first-person experience, I think of that as that summer in Jordan and traveling throughout the Middle East as really um, changing how I thought of that by saying the first person experience is so valuable. And what is journalism often about? It's about going out and meeting people and talking to people and having that first person instead of, you know, sort of reading about and then translating, being there. I, I loved that. And that's where I start, first started thinking about journalism. My mom, um, when I came back, talked to me about that because I would get frustrated sometimes with how things were covered on TV. And she was like, why don't you try it? 
<laughs> when I finally disabused myself of this kind of random walk on Wall Street and my first job, uh, and I wanted to get into journalism, I remember thinking to myself that it's not like these places are overtly welcoming. You don't open up a Fortune magazine no. and see a career section. or no. <laughs> You have to have a lot of moxie. They didn't care so much about pedigree. It was all about your clips. Could you do things on spec? Could you write me an incredible memo, kid, that sweeps me off my feet? I don't care about your resume. I don't care about your senior thesis. I still have an unopened LSAT prep kit from the year 1998 when I graduated. Mm. But how did you pick this opportunity? I mean, it's into the great wide open. Does he? The, did the late Louis Rukeyser even record in, in New York, in Connecticut? Yeah. No, in, in New York. I think you'd do well with that, though. You're so like, I feel like you could do this elevator pitch really well when you were starting out? Well, only after the PTSD of the last 25 years has informed <laughs> that. There are many things that I would say to my 22-year-old self, but I'm amazed that I, you know, I parachuted into New York and took clips. And yeah. when somebody was absent, I decided to go on TV and I didn't know what I was talking about, but I did it. And yeah. after a while, it's like, it's like being there is nine-tenths mm -hmm. of the job. But how did you find this show and the, the verve and the audacity to kind of go and do that? I was graduating from UVA and I went home um I think it was on the spring break of my fourth year and I my parents went to Europe on a long delayed trip and I agreed to help watch my baby brother and so I moved home and while he was at school I first I drove into Philadelphia which is they I grew up in Connecticut but now they live in Pennsylvania I drove, drove into Philadelphia I drove out to Lancaster, PA, which I learned when I got there and went in calling it Lancaster and was quickly corrected when I got to the local news station and just talked to UVA grads that I found in these places uh, for advice about how to become a journalist and how to get into television uh, because I only had under my belt um, an unpaid internship at CNN, which I did in Atlanta the prior summer. And I loved being in a newsroom. So I knew that much that I liked being in a newsroom, that I liked television. I needed to learn how to do this. And I just drove around and none of those jobs panned out, but it was like a lot of research of going in and talking to people and explaining. And everyone told me, you got to earn your stripes for a number of years. You got to go out to the very far market and work your way up and this and that. And I was like, I don't, I don't, I what, can't. To work local TV to work and to local get TV to, pulled up by CBS or the right, Today Show or exactly. something. Exactly. And I was like, I don't know, because maybe I do want to go back to school and maybe I do want to get, you know, more degrees or, um, so I was like, I don't know that I want to make that long-term investment at age 22 in, in trying to have that 15-year plan, right, to get back to the city I know I want to live in. So why don't I work, why don't I move to New York, take this job with CNBC for this anchor, uh, Louis Rukeyser, who was, he had this Friday program called Wall Street Week, which people watch to have, sort of make sense of what happened in the markets. He wouldn't blink when he gave the introduction, I remember. <laughs> yeah. And he had these big leather chairs, and you'd have to watch the people walk in yes. and take yeah, their yeah, seats. Yeah, they did. That, that is kind of... I was hokey, like, wow. Hokey. Yeah. But he, his audience was very dedicated and he went from PBS to CNBC and I interviewed and I knew nothing about the financial markets. And I remember I, I, my dad had worked on Wall Street, but I knew nothing about it. I memorized where the Dow closed, which as anyone knows, means absolutely nothing. But I thought it meant something. <laughs> and he didn't ask me about any of it. He asked me about what I'd studied in school. He asked me about everything. His brother had gone to UVA and he sang me the UVA fight song. Oh, wow. And um, so that, I think, won me some points. And then he just talked to me about the Middle East because he had been a foreign correspondent for years before becoming a financial anchor. And so I think he just saw, oh, I can, I can, she's malleable, right? <laughs> like I can teach her. And that was how I got my first paid job in television. 
um, and learn to line produce and learn to do all these other things. And uh, it was it was good homework. 9-11 happened on your senior year at UVA, right? It did. Mm-hmm. Was there part of you that entertained the idea of maybe going to Jordan or stringing from where? Yes. Um, and one of the job offers I got was from CNN to go to Atlanta for, I think it was less money than my college tuition <laughs> cost. Like it was like a pittance to work overnights, to take in feeds and help translate stuff because um, of, of the war in Iraq. That's where we ended that year. And I just I was like, no, I don't think I want to do that. How do I, let me just figure out if I want to work in television. Let me figure out the craft of it. Um, and they had a show at CNBC at the time that also was doing um, a lot of, of national security and foreign affairs. Because, I mean, as you know, in financial news, it's everything. Yeah, yeah. Traders trade off information about everything. So oil, that's the Middle East, right? Like, How did you get your break at CNBC? Risk. How did you go from Rue Kaiser to CNBC? Well, Rue Kaiser was at CNBC at oh, that point. Right. Yeah, he had left PBS, P- uh, CBS, or CNBC, bought his show. Um, and then uh, I... Didn't I, Scaramucci take one final crack at... Wall Street Week, it didn't work. I think work. he tried to buy it recently, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. yeah. I don't know who owns it now. But I had very, I learned how to interview and it, like, I think back in horror at these hedge fund managers who were pleased to be on Lou's show. And he was like, you have to talk to Margaret, who's going to do all the background for me and send it to me. And like, they must have been like, who the hell is this kid asking me these ridiculous questions about very basic finance? So how do you, we always ask. Um, but we, it was a great way to learn. We ask our guests when they think back retrospectively, how do you fight that imposter syndrome? And you stay with it. Like, I'm going to persevere. I'm bound to meet someone in a green room. This is, this fever is going to break. Just hold on to it. Well, I was just trying to learn everything I could, basically. Because I, I didn't know. I was like, maybe I want to be an editor. Maybe I want to be a writer. I didn't know that I wanted. I had no concept that I would end up in a face the nation. I had no concept. of. Um, I was just sort of like, let me figure this out. Let me see what I am interested in here. And how do I get to being that correspondent in the Middle East? And you're right. That's one of the big things that is tough if you are starting out in journalism, particularly in the environment we are in. That investment of investing in young people and sending them out and building them, that's not necessarily there. It's you said stringers, that's like freelancers that you are paying, you are not paying to go move to Cairo. That's saying, well, kid, if you move to Egypt, call me. Maybe I'll hire you here or there. That wasn't really so much of an option, certainly not for a 22 year old girl straight out of college. Were you able to make overtures to these, you know, foreign policy and foreign policy coverage heavies. I'm thinking Christiane Amanpour. Like, what if you made a beeline for her or a mentor? Oh, I was terrified of her. When I interned at CNN, when she walked by, I was like, (gasps) Were there people that took you in at that point and said, listen, focus, get a couple of these under your belt. Uh, Let's see if we could get you abroad to cover, I don't know, the the World Economic Forum. I was a producer for a number of years. And um, one of the anchors who I produced for after Lou Rukeyser, his name is Ron Insana, uh, had a show in the middle of the day called Street Signs. You probably remember that, it. Yeah. yeah. And um, he would do, he was always great because we'd come in and pitch all the time. And all those skills are really important to learn how to write up. You know, it's not necessarily, we call them packages where they're the stories you watch on your evening news broadcast. But like when you're doing cable and you are constantly reinventing the wheel every single day to fill this hour with what's important, Right. And you go, how about we cover this thing this way? And you have to walk into that pitch meeting with, here's the guest, here's the idea, here's how we do it. All those things were lessons that informed the next 
role. And so I was booking and I was researching and I was doing all those things. It wasn't like I walked in and said, make me Christiana Manpour. So that's how it worked. But he gave me a few opportunities to do. I remember doing something on. Um, I remember you covering a, a lot of retail initially. Well, that was when they actually gave me the job being a correspondent. I see. I had to show that I could do it and then say I was leaving, and then they made me a correspondent. I see. That's often how it works. And so when I talk to people who are, who are starting out in television, it's, it's not a clear, here's my vision for you, or at least that was not my experience. It was like, learn everything you can, say yes to things, take on the skills, and then see where you are. You were listening to some of my interview with Margaret Brennan of CBS's Face the Nation. Catch the episode in its entirety at linkfulldradio.com. Chef Jeremiah Bullfrog, you might know him from Food Network, discussed the hustle and scrappiness that got him to his big break, becoming personal chef to rap superstar Rick Ross. Go back to your mind in 1998, because that's when we were graduates from what we were doing. And I think about it because it was 25 years ago. And I, too, returned to Miami at the turn of the century. Did you have any indication that the place would explode the way it did right now? If I fast forward to 2023, it's now known as one of the most expensive cities in the hemisphere, if not the world. Rents are not keeping up with things. We have hedge fund managers and celebrities. You know, the people who live in, uh, what is it, Indian Creek Village, what, you know, Billionaire's Isle. It was actually a place where you would drive down Biscayne Boulevard back in the day and see a lot of dereliction. And now there are neighborhoods known as the Upper East Side and Wynwood. And, you know, they don't call things Little Haiti. They call it oh, Ironside. And I, I don't recognize my hometown anymore. And you effectively have placed many big bets on this hometown. I mean, you were there opening up this truck in 2009 when it was cored out from the, the real estate and subprime collapse. Yeah, listen, Robin, I can give you a whole dissertation on the growth of Miami and all its ups and downs throughout the uh, the decades. We could even tap in Billy Corbin, who knows better than I and, and has his fingers in the pie pretty well. You know, watching Miami grow has been, you know, one of the the proud sort of hometown feels for me. You know, what we started to do back in, say, 05, 06 was to make Miami sort of like a neighborhood, right? Miami is this large, encompassing city that stretches quite a bit. You say in your Miami, but, you know, you're actually in Hialeah or you're in Aventura. These are, these are far-stretching neighborhoods. You know, so me, for, for having traveled a bit around the world and being fortunate enough to see other cities and other communities uh, and other neighborhoods, that's what I knew I wanted to bring back to Miami. That was what was missing for me. Can I live here, work across the street, walk down the street to go to the bodega, you know, frequent an establishment every week because we know the bartender's name and he knows our order? You know, those are the kind of things that I felt were missing in Miami. There was a lot of flash. There was a lot of cash. There was a lot of rented Lamborghinis, still are, you know, driving around. <laughs> and and that just, that wasn't, you know, that, the Hertz, that was mine. The Hertz foreign Lamborghini edition. Correct. No, I know Correct. it. Yeah, you know. A Maserati's everywhere. Yeah, it, it was a South Beach thing. It was the glitz and the glam. There was a lot of Euro trash, you know, like. I was I was in the thick of it in the 90s, you know, with a fake ID sneaking into all the clubs in South Beach. It was super cool, but it was not a sustainable model by any means. If you look at it now in the growth and when you look at it from the outside, it's grown a hundred times, right? But for us, we're still doing our thing. We're still in our neighborhood. You know, now we have the neighborhood pizzeria. That's our thing. We want to feed people around the corner. 
Um, but we also want to feed those people who are driving, you know, from 45 minutes away to, to join us to, to see what our neighborhood is. You know, it, it, that's always our thing. It's like we're by locals for locals and just setting that neighborhood vibe. I don't think people outside really truly understand how little of a kind of a pedestrian by local for local thing there was in Miami back in 98 and 99. But regardless, you went on your vision crest, which I understand included restaurant Aquavit in New York, El Bulli. Tell me about that and tell me about catapulting yourself after culinary school and and agreeing to kind of keep your head down and travel the world and how you finance that and how does a person even develop the audacity or the guts to kind of do that? Do you write a chef? Do you just show up? Do you do you drink with them? I mean, how does that even work? Yeah, so um, the El Bui thing, that's one of the earmarks on my resume. It could pretty much get me into almost any kitchen, and it did for, for many, many years. I think chefs hired me based on the fact that they just wanted to hear stories about El Bui in Spain, which was if you – Sort of go back to like 98, 99, um, there was very little information coming out. Obviously, this is, you know, pre-social uh, media. You know, we got our news in print. But there were some articles coming out about people who made the journey to, to El Bui in Spain, which is about two hours northeast of Barcelona. It was this house that was up a winding road off of a cliff that overlooked a beautiful uh, sort of cove on the water, closer to France than it is to any city in Spain. I had read this article about the chef there, Ferran Adria, making spaghetti that was clear, but it tasted like Parmesan cheese. And I said, you know what? Sign me up. This is what I want to do. Um, I always had the drive within me to work for the best so that I can learn from the best. And, and But Jeremy, you're Jer chef, Jeremiah, how does that work? Do you send a cover letter or resume? Do you show up? Do you get, uh, you know, do you get somebody that sets up a shiduk or vouchers for you? Okay, so El Bui, it was just dumb luck. I, I just sent an email and I said, hey, I, I'd like to come work. What do I have to do? And I got a poorly translated email back saying that they were full that season and then I should apply the next season. So 2000 rolls or 2001 rolls around. I send, um, I send another email. I said, Hey, I'd like to, you know, come. What do I have to do? And it's like I hit the lottery. I, I have that email printed out somewhere and it said, please come join us. They had the same amount of stagiaires or interns in their kitchen as they did diners. So it was 54 cooks in the kitchen not getting paid for 54 diners every night in the dining room. That's, that's So a this crazy is an ratio. apprenticeship. You're not getting paid any pesos or euros or whatever they were going back with that back then. You were self-funding this? Correct. I was uh, living on a credit card that I maxed up. It was pesetas at the time. So Spain was fairly affordable. I, I could buy... A bottle of wine, a baguette before work for, I think it was equivalent to about $5 US. My rent was uh, $200 US wow. for, yeah, I had a couple of roommates. But, you know, like life in Europe was great. Working at uh, a Michelin three-star restaurant, not so much. It wasn't the, uh, the prettiest. Chef, what was your calling card coming out of culinary school when you write these people and they say, okay, if there's one thing you have to prepare for me on the fly, not that the world is Iron Chef by, by any stretch, but I look at your 
repertoire right now. And I'm, you know, I'm, I, I fanboy on this all over social media. You had the old Dirty Dog, which was a smoked short rib hot dog on a potato bun topped with spicy sweet slaw. Your famous banh mi taco, which oxtail trotters, country pate, pickled radishes, the sloppy Joe with brisket and curry in a hurry, which is vegan curry with rice. Um, you do pizza now. You do an egg and potato taco, charred yam, cavatelli. What was your imprimatur, your effectively your your elevator pitch coming out of school? What were you known for in those North Miami circles? Uh, coming out of color school, I probably thought I could, you know, cook anything. But in reality, probably not. I was very fortunate to have a personal chef position in culinary school for a very prominent Miami lawyer who he sort of taught me um, through sort of inadvertent means. He would read uh, both the New York Times and the Miami Herald every day. He would circle recipes, leave them out on the counter. So I'd go to culinary school, learn these grandiose dishes and, and sort of like haute cuisine in school. I'd shop at Epicure and uh, buy the best ingredients. And then I would go cook in a very well-equipped kitchen. And that's how I learned how to cook. Sort of following. Would you other invite people. friends and other other contemporaries to sample this stuff? I mean, how do you do it in a safe but constructive, critical environment? I, I mean, I, I know this stuff must seem obvious to you, but it's not necessarily for our listeners. I wanna I wanna know how you build this from nothing. Well, I, again, I was fortunate to to have a job where I had to do it. I was sort of thrown into the fire. A lot of times yeah. in this industry, that's that's the way you learn. Is dinners at six? It's for four people. You better figure it out. And my boss was not the one to, to hold his tongue for anyone. If it wasn't good, I heard about it. And it just sort of, sort of shapes you, you know. Um, it's not as much carrot and stick in the kitchen world. It's trial by fire. You're on deadlines. The best way to learn how to cook, though, is, is learning other people's recipes. You know, you learn a recipe. And once you have it down where you don't need to reference the recipe, you've learned a dish. Now, say you take that same dish and you swap out a couple of ingredients that for whatever reason makes sense to you or they weren't in season, they weren't available. That's how you learn how to cook. I mean, let's timestamp this at the turn of the century, the beginning of this, the first decade of the aughts. El Bouilly, WD-50, Noma, Restaurant Aquavit, which I remember was the first one I sampled uh, on 54th Street. It was at Marcus Samuelson's on, on my first restaurant week in 2001. And then I don't know how you ever cross paths to become the personal chef to mega rapper and uh, media influencer and cultural tentpole Rick Ross. Yeah. How did that happen? Shouts to the boss, Rick Ross. We were doing a, uh, we're doing an album release party for Keisha Cole uh, back in the day. Rick Ross only had the one hit at the time. Every, every day I'm hustling. We were at this uh, CD release party. We were catering it, and Rick Ross was there in the kitchen just sort of hanging out, the glasses on, the chain, and he kept eating the hors d'oeuvres, and he was cracking us up, just, you know, cracking jokes and uh, extremely <laughs> personable. It was sort of like a Miami who's who of the hip-hop community. You know, it was like Fat Joe was hanging out, DJ Khaled was there, Rick Ross, and it was just a great time. And I remember him saying to me, let me get your number, when I call you, it's not because I want to go to the movies. So sort of his in a, inadvertent <laughs> way of saying, you know, we're not going to hang out, but, uh, but I like what you do. And sure enough, you know, it was maybe three weeks later I got the text and uh, that started the relationship. Whoa. What was the assignment? What was the order? 
So that's the funny thing. Uh, cooking for Rick Ross isn't, it, there's not a lot of set boundaries there. For example, I would, uh, hey, yo, bullfrog, six o'clock, hey, people, make it sexy. And I'm like, what does that, what does that mean? Do you want, <laughs> do you want steak tonight? Should we make shrimp? Uh, do you feel like chicken? Make it sexy. And, uh, you know, always kept me on my toes. Oh my gosh. I always brought enough food for about 30 people because you never know who's going to be there. And listen, the guy has impeccable taste. We watched the guy grow from just being uh, sort of like a one-hit wonder at the time to being a mega mogul, just absolute um, dynamite in, in his industry. Um, he's obviously the cultural icon. Uh, lots of lessons learned from Rick Ross, the boss. You were listening to some of my recent interview with Chef Jeremiah. Catch the episode in its entirety at link fulldradio.com. Full disclosure, stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. A special shout out to our radio listeners on Radio IQ, WVTF, Virginia's NPR news station. Holler if you too would like us on your air. My DMs, alas, are always open. Author Julia Lee was on to discuss her memoir, Biting the Hand, Growing Up Asian in Black and White America. We are in that stretch of your time at Princeton where I met you, and I want uh, to quote your experience, your reflection back on, on trying to be part of the selective eating clubs, your junior and senior year, and the rejection involved there. You wrote, I know college kids are insecure messes, desperate to fit in and belong, to remake themselves, and that kids who come from minoritized backgrounds feel this even more acutely. Still, I beat myself up for being seduced, for being duped. How dumb could I be? Why didn't I go where I was wanted? Why did I willingly put myself into this situation? I hate the person I once was. But then I remind myself, you were brainwashed. You were young. You were trying to survive. To break the wall, that's actually something I think about constantly. I wonder the kind of conversation I could have had with my 20-year-old self, assuming I could superimpose my 47-year-old brain and worldview on that. And that's kind of a, it's a dead end. You have to give yourself grace. You have to cut yourself slack. Yeah, I think that's so true. I mean, you know, I'll be honest that that was the hardest part of the book for me to write was the Princeton section. And it's funny because, you know, I talk about really painful, you know, shameful moments and, you know, moments where I come across not great. And but I was OK with so much of it, so much of the parts from childhood, you know. But no more than that, Julia, I think we just, again, breaking all sorts of walls here. We were just trying I to know. fit in. We were trying, we were trying, there's nothing wrong, and we may have tasted that by senior year when there was an eclectic group of us who would, you know, meet and go out to restaurants and sample. I remember it was you and Sandia and Maria and a handful of people, and we were just on the brink of understanding that, the sobriety of not having to pursue popularity or someone else's construct of popularity for popularity's sake. And in reading this book and in going back and thinking back to, you know, you should have been able to hold your head high. If you think about the, the sacrifices your grandfather made, right, to cross the DMZ and not get shot at, the traumas of your parents and everything. But how could you have known? How could you have known to show up there and say, I'm going to hold my head up high? You just wanted to belong. You just wanted to be with other people. And the system resisted that diversification. I mean, the same eating club corridor, it's, it's laughable to think about it now, but it culminated in 
a building that was popular with uh, students of color called the Third World Center. Could you believe that? Now, in hindsight, I mean, just from a branding perspective, there are all these exclusive eating clubs that cost like five, six thousand dollars, eight thousand dollars a year, and they would throw fancy formals. And some of the students who couldn't afford or didn't want to be part of that were part of the Third World Center. And so, I mean, to kind of square all that with the 2023 reality of and, and self segregation is going to happen. Um, I, I'm amazed at at all the people who. Uh, withstood traumas to get there and all the other people who were there as legacies who just kind of it was just it was just a station along the way everything else was preordained for them yeah i mean so much entitlement among so many groups of people and i yeah i do wonder i'm like wow why was i but i guess i was conditioned to always feel like oh i'm just abjectly grateful to be allowed into this space and instead of holding my head up high and thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I'm proud because I got here based on something more than, you know, my last name or the fact that my dad has a endowed a building or the fact that my grandfather went to this school, you know, I should look at those people with pity because they're just entitled and they didn't have to lift a finger to get here. But instead, I saw it as my own inferiority that I couldn't just gel with them and blend with them and belong like they did. And, you know, I, I did see some people of color, you know, oftentimes Asian Americans who came from wealthy backgrounds who were able to assimilate and to join these clubs and to seem to have no issue. But, you know, I would look at them and I'd think, wow, I thought this person was supposed to be kin to me. And yet, they are very much not like me because, again, it's not just about race. It's not just about gender. It's not just about sexuality. It's about class. And, you know, all of these studies show that the majority of these students at these fancy elite schools come from, you know, the top 10% socioeconomically. And so, yes, you might feel marginalized because you may not be white, but, you know, it helps assimilation if you come from a wealthy background and you have you know, access to the vacations or the resources, you know, you don't feel as out of place in that way. I mean, the Third World Center, you're right. I mean, I remember reflecting on that. And, you know, the Third World Center was meant to be this radical space of coalition building among students of color. And then as both of us, both of us being resident advisors, the incidents of among really privileged people of anorexia, bulimia, the various traumas we were warned. I mean, people might know this, not know this, The they warn resident advisors in colleges that the Monday after Thanksgiving is referred to as Black Monday because many students come back, no shortage of students come back, their parents wait to tell them they're getting a divorce and or the long distance partner breaks up with them. And uh, just the, I don't remember mental health being bandied about at all when we were in college. I don't remember having a resource. I just thought that roughing it out was the way to go. We did have rough, you know, LGBT or sexual harassment training, but I don't recall a mental health resource. I just thought that this was the way it was supposed to feel. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that is something that has changed dramatically from the time when we were there to today, because I look at the way in which my own children speak so much more openly and frankly about their mental health struggles. And there's just less of a stigma against it as there was when we were there. I mean, I think I was trained in the school of you suck it up because, you know, your parents have it so much worse. Your grandparents have it so much worse. There's incredible stigma against mental health within the Korean community. And so, you know, my parents just you know, we didn't even have health insurance. How the hell was I supposed to say, hey, I want to see a therapist? Um, 
you know, maybe you go on meds. I mean, this was just not, not even a possibility. And today I, I'm grateful. I mean, I know that rates of mental health distress are increasing and no surprise. Well, on this on the subject of mental health, you could keep up this, let's call it a charade or whatever it was, this seeking this holy grail, sublimation through accomplishment, vindicating your mom and dad, even through college, even after I say that that, you know, hard won sobriety by the end of college, still you took a manage, prestigious management consulting job and I took a brokerage job. I recall we both detested these jobs. For all of the flaws of the sorting system, you were still able to show up at an interview. The, the, the most prestigious companies would take over the hotel in town and there'd be fondue night, there'd be sushi night. You could literally make a whole dining calendar of, of these people coming up and, and genuflecting before you to take these jobs, which inevitably stunk. But they were great stepping stones to wealth and that that catapulting to New York or LA or San Francisco, wherever you want to do. But after you realized that this was the wrong turn for you at about six months at this consulting firm, you suffered you suffered a nervous break. Yeah. I mean And the ultimate shame for you was, gosh, I got I'm I'm poor. I don't know what to do. I gotta go home and live with mom and dad again. And I I found myself crying when reading this in your book. Uh, because I imagine it's much must be far more widespread than a lot of our contemporaries let on. Right. I mean, you think, oh gosh, I've I've captured the golden ring. The golden ring being this secure, prestigious job on Wall Street or in consulting, and you know now I've got it made. And oftentimes these firms they don't even look at you if you don't come from an Ivy League, say, kind of school. And so the access, the privilege, this club that you're now a part of, and then you're right, like the amplitude of like fancy meals and dining and whining and and trips and you know I remember getting a gift basket when I first got my job offer and thinking oh my god you know here's this amazing present and also I'm going to be making more money than my parents have ever made and this is amazing and then you go into this job and you think oh wait you know I don't agree with I mean first of all the hours are brutal and the travel is brutal and then you also realize you know sometimes there are some ethical issues with the stuff that you're doing you know it's about making money, which is fine. We all live in a capitalist world. But also, you know, what about the ethical decisions we're making? You know, people are losing their jobs. There are some shady things that are happening. The head of my consulting firm ended up being busted for insider trading, and he's now in prison. And you think, what am I upholding here? And also, you know, why do I want this so bad? Is this really what I have been working my whole life for? So the moment when I decided to step away was so frightening for me because I was turning my back on everything I had been told I should be aiming for. And what it taught me is something that, you know, I mean, I'm now in academia. This is not a, a highly remunerative career. But what I realized is that, for me at least, you know, making a, a ton of money is not my primary, you know, motivating factor. That, in fact, you know, I need to find some sense of purpose and meaning beyond that and, you know, if the American dream is like making a million bucks, that's not my American dream, and especially not when it hurts people I know and love, and also when it perpetuates inequalities. And working at some of these firms, you see, you know, racism and sexism up close. And, you know, these places are, are reflections of the injustices in our whole country. And that was really eye-opening for me. But absolutely, you know, 
at that point, I I quit my job and I just spent a lot of time, you know, sleeping and, you know, I would hang out with my friend, you know, Eileen, who was also kind of burnt out from this long journey of achievement. And I, I just, I also think about, you know, it was welcoming me into a world that I thought, wow, I'm now past the gates. I'm sitting at this table and you know what? The food's not very good and the company's terrible. <laughs> and like... Why did I work so hard to be here when I don't like these people? I mean, for the first time in my life, I was eating at fancy restaurants. And at first, I didn't know what fork to use. And I didn't know how to order off the menu because I grew up never going to restaurants because we couldn't afford to. And now suddenly, we were going to these fancy fine dining establishments where, you know, the check was always being paid by the client. And I didn't even look twice. And I just expensed everything. And yet it was so hollow. That was Julia Lee, author of the new memoir, Biting the Hand, Growing Up Asian in Black and White America. You can catch the episode in its entirety on podcast at linkfulldradio.com. Full disclosure, stay with us. And to close us out, Mitchell Kaplan, the man behind indie bookselling phenom Books and Books and the massive Miami Book Fair on fighting the bands of the culture war. 40 years ago, you launched the Miami Book Fair, and 41 years ago in 1982, Books and Books. Now, here's the paradox. I'm a child of Miami. It's not known as a literary town, necessarily, but there'd be this huge force of gravity every autumn with the Miami Book Fair and the entire nation, C-SPAN trucks, CBS This Morning, everybody would descend on the place. If you had a book, you wanted to present it at the Miami Book Fair. And here you are at a crossroads now in 2023, really at the nexus of the culture wars, where uh, the, the state has turned decidedly red and an individual parent in Dade County or Broward County or Palm Beach or wherever in South Florida, if he or she wants to take a book off the bookshelves in the library, can protest and it can be remaindered. And you reacted to that. We did. We had a, um, last week, we had this phenomenal gathering at the Carl Gables Congregational Church, another institution here in Miami, which actually bills itself as a sanctuary for banned books as well. So we had this event there. And what sparked it, we had this this band, this event pushing back on uh, three books that are still in print that were banned from the Bob Graham, ironically, K through eight school. And I say ironically because Robin, you and I both know Bob Graham is one of the great senators and governors. And governors, that we right? Have in this state. Yeah, and it, this school was named after him in Miami Lakes. Uh, the school system doesn't say it was banned. They say it was restricted, which is true. It had restricted access. But everything you say is true too, Robin, that it, with the new law that, that has been passed, one parent can come in, challenge a book. The book is then pulled from circulation until a committee rules on whether that book ought to be taken out of circulation or if something else should happen with those books. I apologize. Well, your your dog, dog is obviously not in right favor there. of this. So hey, the pool guy is here. I think. <laughs> no, easy, easy. It's okay. So what what occurred was that a committee was formed, and they decided that these three books, ought to, which are written, well, two of them were written for elementary age kids. The third one was Amanda Gorman's 
uh, poem uh, during the inauguration. Yeah, National Youth Poet Laureate Amanda Gorman. One of the band yeah. books was The Hill We Climb. She performed uh, uh, some of the poetry at President Biden's 2021 inauguration. She read that poem at the inauguration. Right. That was yanked out of that elementary school library and it was put into the middle school. Mitchell, what does it mean when something like that is pilloried by a parent as indoctrination or there's this amorphous kind of woke, you know, there was this boogeyman of critical race theory and brainwashing our children. You've seen it across the 50 states, a backlash, uh, things roughly uh, after the George Floyd murder in 2020, that there was this backlash and a backlash to the backlash. Yeah, well, to me, it's very cynical. It's performative. What you have is you have these politicians who feel like they have an issue that they can hang their hat on in order to galvanize a very small sliver of the kind of Republican electorate. And I think that's really what we're seeing. I, you know, it's circular. Judy Bloom, who I've got a bookshop with in Key West, says to me, uh, she was one of the most banned authors in the 70s and 80s, and she says to me that it's worse now than it's ever been. So again, it's a political issue which is being used simply to galvanize, like all of the cultural issues are. The whole focus on transgender athletes, the focus on gay and lesbian restrictions in the law, drag shows, that sort of thing. This is all an attempt, really a very cynical attempt to drive people apart. One thing I don't understand, Mitchell, and you know, I've covered the Cuban-American experience in some of my reporting, is that how exile population, how this is an anathema to so much of the Cuban-American population in uh, uh, South Florida, which is you know, detesting the time since Fidel Castro came to power and no shortage of media has been banned in their homeland. But this is something that still sells. This is something that you saw Trump came to Cafe Versailles on, on uh, in Cayo Ocho in the middle of ha Little Havana. He's hugely popular there. DeSantis, the governor of the state and the Stop Woke Act, is considered potentially an heir apparent in the GOP. I think about the immigrant populations there who've always invade and many Cuban-American authors you've had against censorship and uh, the creeping kind of uh, panopticon government state. Again, what has happened here, uh, and, and also, you know, you and I, Robin, both being from South Florida, know that Cuban-American community here is not monolithic. There are lots of voices speaking out against this. There's, a, there's actually a group called Moms Against Band Libros, and they've been fighting it very hard, a, a Cuban-American group. However, what we also know, those of us who live here, is that there are certain kinds of words, certain kinds of phrases that galvanize people. And what's happened is using the word socialist and communist kind of trumps, so to speak, the whole notion of banned books. So you can see even now what Trump is doing in his defense of these latest charges is he's calling them, it's an example of a communist, you know, there are communists who are doing this. And, and it's just fraught with, um, no, it's illogical. And so what you bring up is completely illogical. There should be no reason why the Cuban-American community or any member of the immigrant community that comes from a dictatorship where people have been banning books and controlling what's happening on their in their homeland, none of them should be in favor of these rules and these new laws. But they are, and they are because the, the fear uh, being stoked is greater on the other side. So that's really what's going on. 
Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Mitchell Kaplan of Books and Books, the famous bookseller chain that started in South Florida a little more than 40 years ago. He's also head of the Miami Book Fair, which the entire world seems to descend on downtown Miami for a few days in the autumn every year, which is celebrating its 40th year. We're talking about the backlash to the backlash in terms of the Stop Woke Act and the various uh, creeping book bans that you can experience now in Florida. Talk to me about relations with uh, teachers and librarians. If they see you in the Gables in South Florida as a kind of a font of freedom, as a receptacle, you are a connector. So for example, your proximity to Judy Bloom or Amanda Gorman or every single publisher out there, every single author, you can't be banned as easily. You are a hub and spoke, an airport, if you will, of literary talent. Well, Indie bookstores across the country have been proponents of the freedom to read. And you can't ban books. Fortunately, you know, what we're talking about is not banning books in a bookstore. I mean, that, you know, they tried that in Virginia where you are. Right. And it didn't quite work. Uh, So that still is a bit beyond the pale. But we have to protect, you know, we have to protect our democracy. And that's what this is all about. If you ask me about the reaction here, there's a huge pushback huge it was it was quiet it was it was fractured we had this event over 500 people came we gave out 1200 of the banned books for free we had teachers we had librarians we had uh, members of the community that were very prominent members of the cuban american community members of every community so there is a kind of organized pushback that is beginning right now people were deflated by the fear that, that these very, very, very vague laws created. And you will see, I think, this not taking hold ultimately in Florida. This is not a winning issue for DeSantis or for any of these guys who are doing this. It didn't win in the last election, these culture wars, and I don't think it's going to win again. The reason why Florida really went more red than ever really was a matter of getting out the vote. Uh, 60% of Republicans voted, 40% of Democrats voted. We really need to make sure that the vote, that there's a more of an organized effort to get out the vote. And to be honest, these culture issues galvanize people, and I think they're going to be very sorry that they went down this road to begin with. Now, you include in your roster of other banned books, I mean, I can't believe it, Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck, like staple high school reading for me. That's part of the canon. Mouse by Art Spiegelman. I Am Billie Jean King by Brad Meltzer, fellow North Miami Beach High School graduate. The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien, among many others. Uh, for those of us studying history, there, you know, history, as I like to say, as everybody likes to say, rhymes. There have been periods where worries about sedition or communism or other things resulted in books being taken out, authors being taken out. I'm thinking about the Red Scare. I'm thinking about periods where Unfortunately, this was collateral damage. The freedom that you have today that you're flexing is the product of centuries of kind of struggle and uh, confrontation and brinksmanship with people who wanted to ban books. History is not linear, unfortunately, Robin. We don't solve a problem and then move on, which has been a big revelation to so many of us. As you point out, history is circular. And what we're having, what we're seeing is uh, a repeat, uh, and in some ways it's even worse of things that have happened in the past. I mean, you know, you talk about what, the, you know, from the McCarthy period 
There was the free speech movement in Berkeley in the early 60s. You know, Allen Ginsberg had to fight in order to be able, after he read Howl, you know, at City Lights. So the, this thing is circular. But that is how we keep our democracy, is by being very vigilant. And so when we see something that is an attack on one of our basic and fundamental rights, we need to make sure we fight it. And I think that's what I'm discovering. <laughs> Even being the old guy that I am, I'm learning new tricks and learning new things. And one of the things I'm learning is the fight for our basic civil liberties never really ends. It never really does. So we just have to use whatever perch we have, whatever voice we have to make sure that we can push back. You know, Mitchell from the sidelines is a, you know, my book again came out six years ago, was on Miami Hotel Scarface, where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami. I remember like when this press first started happening with the Stop Woke Act and, and Governor DeSantis, I kind of wanted my book to get banned because in social media circles, by banning something, you make it seem so exotic. And other, like, I'm thinking about critical race theory and AP African American history. Like, now with remote schooling, Mitchell, you know, nobody can come in and stick a thumb on your Zoom connection or the various other ways. You can engage an author and have a book party remotely and have hundreds and hundreds of South Floridians and, and people from overseas even patch in. It's just much harder to, to put the kibosh on a voice. Thankfully, that's the case. And, you know, you're absolutely right, Robin. They, they, I wish they would have banned your book. We <laughs> both would have been... I would have been able to put my kids through preschool again uh, with the sale of your book. We I mean, wanted to so, actually, so, you know, a couple of ex-cons who came to the book launch in the Gables, they they asked me if, like, do you want us to stage a fake gunfight between exiles and everything? Maybe get the Miami oh, Herald and God. others to cover it? We could have done that. Remember, like, Pirate's World when right, we were kids. Right, right. But the fact of the matter is Mouse became a bestseller again. Amanda Gorman's book. The Hill We Climb is a bestseller right now because of the book ban. They call that the Streisand that effect, I guess, roughly in literary circles now, where I guess, you know, Barbara Streisand tried to ban paparazzi with choppers and everything from getting footage of her wedding back in the day. And it always, it only caused more curiosity of her compound and her estate. And, and, and when you try to ban something, it only puts it in sharper relief and makes more people take notice. Oh, most definitely. We, you know, we know that banning, banning anything never works, banning a thought banning an idea, banning anything, never, never works. So it's a, it's a fool's game that they're playing, but we still have to be vigilant. And I thank people like you for bringing this to the broader attention of everyone else. That was Mitchell Kaplan of Books and Books and the Miami Book Fair. Catch the episode in its entirety on podcast at linkfulldradio.com. Full disclosure, a special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. A shout out to our listeners on NPR member station WVTF Radio IQ News, Virginia's NPR news station, celebrating 50 years on the air. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. Big live show news coming up, so stay connected. And don't forget to catch me every week on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. <laughs>